Welcome to My Life, Chassidus Applied, episode 265. We're now at the beginning of the week of Pasha Shlach. So we'll begin living with the times, as the Alter Rebbe said, living with the Pasha, the chapter in the Torah that we read during this time, helps us understand, so to speak, the energy of the time. Because time, at the end of the day, is energy. And it teaches us lessons in our personal lives that are fitting to this particular time of the year. It's interesting, in, part, in Israel, they're actually reading the next chapter because of the Ibriyar, the leap year, and it will all even out by Matis Masse, I believe. So, Parsha Shlach. Parsha Shlach is really very much continues the theme in the Rebbe Sichis that begins in Parsha Baaleischa. And that is Aveda Bekeyachatzme, meaning work through your own initiative. We spoke last week about Shalheves Elameelel, that the Kayan Godel has to light the Menera in a way that the flame has to rise on its own. And what do we read in this week's chapter? Shlach Lecho, Ledaitacha, as Rashi says. The Torah adds a word Lecho. God is telling Moshe Shlach, send, send scouts. To spies to scout out the land before we and before you enter the promised land, but he has the word lecha, shlach lecha, which is a chiddush. And when we say shlach, shach send lecha ledaitecha. I ki and he ain't a mitzvah I don't command you. This do ledaitecha. Take your initiative and do it. So God's suggesting something, but make sure that you do it with your initiative. Of course, the obvious question is why suddenly here. And they tell you everything God tells Moshe Rabbeinu, this is what you should do, this is what you shouldn't do, this is what you should command the people, command Aaron and Bonov, his sons. And here suddenly, secondly, shouldn't this have raised red flags? Suddenly the Abish is telling him, I'm not commanding you. You have to do it on your own. He should have said, you know what, if you command me to do it, I'll do it. If not, I'm not doing it. And we need to know this whole difference and what happens that moment, as Rashi says, at that moment when Moshe chose the leaders of all the tribes to be the scouts, they were kshedim. They were kosher. They were fitting. They were appropriate. And then the Dibasaras, they made that big mistake. They slandered the land. And they came back, not just with a report, but a report with a conclusion that we cannot enter. It's a land that consumes its inhabitants. Eretz Echelish so it didn't end up right. So why didn't Moshe recognize in a sense as God is telling him, I'm not commanding you, that maybe this is something that he should not do. And many more questions, obviously. The biggest question of all, what did happen? These were the, the best of the best. They were the leaders of the tribes. They were people Moshe handpicked, most fitting. What was, what was their big mistake? And of course, the chassidus applied of this, it's lessons to us. So when you look in the Rebbe Sichas, based on the Mamorim and the Alta Rebbe and the Rabbeim afterwards, come away with a few key powerful points that really teaches us the deeper story going on in this chapter. And what's the deeper story? That the Maraglim were very high-level people. And they were sent to scout out the land, like the Ramban says, before you go into the land, you have to you have to do whatever it takes, even though God's giving blessings and giving the power and the promise. But whatever it takes, you have to figure out which is the best way to go in, see where the enemy is, where the strongholds are, to do whatever is possible to make a nucha, that should be easy to conquer. 
when they entered the promised land. When they went, what happened? They suddenly saw these giants. They saw these powerful people. They saw the big fruits. They saw the materialism and its strength. They said, no, we can't do this. Because of their high spiritual state, as the Alter Rebbe explains, they, because of that they felt, let's stay in the Midbar. Here we're protected by God, the clouds of glory, Ananiya Kovid, the man, the water, the water coming from the stone. So let's stay here. So it was actually because of their spiritual state. They didn't want to go into, as they said, materialism is a land that consumes its inhabitants. As indeed it does. Look at history. Once you get immersed in the material world, even if you have good intentions, it overwhelms. It could overwhelm. What was their grave error? Their grave error is no one asked you a conclusion. We asked you how to enter, not whether to enter. Had they been simpler people, they may have just come back and given their report. They went a step further. They behaved like leaders, but they were not meant to be leaders in this case because Hashem, God said, we're going into the promised land, you're going into the promised land. I promised to Tavram, Yitzhak Yankov, the whole reason that you went through Mitzrayim and everything was to go into the promised land and build on Beis Amigdash there and take the holy land and turn it into a holy place that would be an example that would shine light to the rest of the world, transform it to bring Mashiach. But they saw it as too much of a challenge. And that was their grave error. Now you understand why Ladaitacha. Because this is precisely, you have to do it through your effort, your initiative. I'm telling you, you go into the promised land. Now I'm telling you, now send scouts. But make sure you do it at your initiative because you need to make your effort to figure out what's the best way to go. So Moshe was not surprised when he heard it. He realized there are things that are commanded from above. There are things, shall have a Salem that we have to now do whatever we can. God blesses you in everything you do. So he realized we have to do something. So it didn't raise a red flag. He realized, of course, there's a risk. As soon as you do something at your initiative, there's always a risk. And indeed, what happened? Didn't work out. And yet we see in Pasha Chukas, Moshe sends Meraglim again. So you see that he understands the value. And Yeshua sends Meraglim as well. There it did work out. If it was a problem, it was a mistake that he made, then you don't send scouts again. But it's important to have scouts because in every situation, as we'll talk about in the lesson in life, we need to do our part. But this pechira is free will. And sometimes we can get overwhelmed and you're not asked to figure out whether you can do it. You're asked to figure out how to do it. What is the lesson to all of us? So the Rebbe says, a number of places, shlach is ashlichus. We each are sent as shluchim. We're to also make a shliach, shlach lecha, make shluchim, that go and conquer the material world and turn it into Eretz HaKedosh, into a holy land. But there's challenges when we go into this world. The soul comes down below, sees a world, a very hostile world, a corrupt world, a duplicitous world, a challenging world. So it said, you do not hesitate, do not retreat. You have the power. Yochel Nuchel, as Kolov and Yeshua said, we could conquer it. We have God's power. So don't retreat because it doesn't look easy. Know you have the strengths, but do whatever you can, you figure out how. We all have this in our lives, and we'll find times that there'll seem to be formidable obstacles, and we think we, you know, we can't do it. So you could do it. 
We learn from the Menachem. So we need to have that initiative of ours and we need to look into it. And sometimes that looking into it can be, can be frightening because you're looking, at the, you're, look to, you're looking right into the enemy's eyes. And yet, you have to dig deeper like Yeshua and Kolov did and say, I have the strength, we have the strength to do it. So we need initiative. We can't just rely that God will tell us and do everything. Every one of us needs initiative. Next week we're going to have a special edition on Gimel Tammuz. Gimel Tammuz for our generation is Mamash, our initiative. Where the Rebbe Begoli, revealed way, says, Do what you have to do. But when you do it, it's coming with our effort, with our generating our initiative, and that has a tremendous power. Though it's more challenging, it's much easier if you have the Moshe himself doing it for you, you have the Abish himself doing it for you. So there has to be our effort, and when we educate others, the same thing, you educate your children, you say, it's much easier, let me just do it for them. Well, let me just tell them the solutions to problems. No, they have to find the solutions. You give them strength, you direct them, you guide them, you empower them, you bless them, but they have to be aladaitacha. And then it's coming with, it fulfills the kavana of actually, that's the intention, to go into a world where you need to use certain natural means. You're not living in a miraculous spiritual oasis. You have to enter that world and you have to figure out how to conquer it. And conquer it with spirituality. It means you have to understand and you have to look at different directions and different methodologies and different patterns, different paths and so on. And never, however, retreat and say, I can't do it. You look in all the Rebbe's sikhs and all the Rebbe's letters and all the Yechidus and all the stories. You never hear such a thing as impossible. Someone says, I can't do it. The Rebbe says, you have the Kayach to do it. You have to figure out how. Okay, this program, I should have announced it at the beginning, is dedicated in loving memory of Ben Si and Betel Ben Moshe Feivel and Rachel Ziller, Cyril Keller, a true chassid of the Rebbe, in honor of his 13th Yorzeit and Chof Aleph Sivan, may his neshama have an aliyah. As I said, this should have been announced at the outset, so I'm announcing it now. Programs, this program and all programs can be dedicated and sponsored in honor of a loved one, in memory of a loved one. You can easily do that in our new site, chesidahsupply.com, sponsorship, donate. And um, you can, as I said, it helps our, us and it can help you. It's a partnership and we really encourage that support. With that said, we also have on chesidahsupply.com a whole array of resources, including archives. And I'll mention... The Parsha Shlach, the Chesidus applied to Shlach, is not the first time I've spoken about it. In episodes 70, 120, 166, and 215. Okay. So let's now go to some immediate questions. First question we'll cover today is a topic we talked about, but it comes up again and again because it is an important topic, one of the fundamentals that the Rebbe instituted, wanted to institute, and that is the concept of a mashpia, a mentor. What, what, how, how do I find a mashpia is the question. How can we create a more organized and reliable system for identifying and finding an appropriate mashpia? And the individual writes like this. Hi, Rabbi Jacobson. Thank you for your great classes here and offering the opportunity to ask questions. Yes. You can ask questions again. See this applied slash ask and ask any anonymous, completely confidential question. So this fellow writes... Well, this person writes, I'm wondering about the role of a mashpia versus a life coach or therapist. 
I struggle to find a mashpia because I, it's, it's hard to find the exact person who I respect in all aspects of life and also who knows me. How can I trust someone to give me advice on my life if they don't really know me? And I never really feel like I have ongoing success with a mashpia because A, when I'm inspired to call, they may not be available. Usually busy women. And when I'm feeling badly, clearly this is a woman writing. I said that. And when I'm feeling badly and uninspired and need help, I'm not interested to even ask for help. B, I find it hard to ask or listen to personal advice when I don't think the mashpia really knows completely what's going on in my life. And from speaking to them sporadically, they can't really get a complete picture, in my opinion. C, guilt taking up too much of their time. When they're busy women, Baruch Hashem, especially when they might charge for doing similar things. So I think what would work is to have set times to speak to a mashpia and stick to it even just to check in and to report to every week, every other week, month. Or the mashpia should even call the mushpa. I just wish there was more of a system to it, kind of like set therapy appointments where you can, even, where you can go even if no burning issue just to keep growing and keep the relationship. What do you think? I really believe in the mashpia concept and want it to work, especially because it's so important to the Rebbe. I just haven't seen much success in the system so far. Thanks in advance. Okay, so firstly, let me do some cross-referencing. Episodes 20, 74, 98, 140, and 141, and 161. And there I elaborate the whole history Especially Yutaskislav Tovshin Lamed Zayin, when the Rebbe, in a whole sicha, discussed about reinstituting something that Abayim always wanted to have is Mashpim. And then in the Fabrengans, after that Yutaskislav, Shchei Shvat, Yutzvat, Tubishvat, and so on, the Rebbe continued the discussion elaborately. Frankly, it never really took off the Rebbe the way the Rebbe wanted. Later, Dvorim Tovshim Amvov. The Rebbe instituted Kharav. Some say that was just Mashpim with different language. Some say a little different, Arav, Mashpia. I discussed all that in those episodes. But since this is an important topic, and even though we've talked about it, I've just re- I won't repeat everything I've said, I'll just try to address this particular question. It's not an easy thing to find a Mashpia because as this person writes, you need someone you trust. You need someone that you open up to. You need someone that is giving you advice that you feel you can trust and rely on. It's not always easy to find someone. We, the need for it, I think everybody understands that we're subjective people. And ain't chavash someone in fetters cannot free themselves. Having a objective ear, an objective eye, someone who's not negebedavah, someone who doesn't have any bias or prejudice, can be extremely powerful. Besides the directives, the Rebbe's emphasis on it to really grow and become a better person, to deal with mistakes, to deal with choices, Everything that life, life decisions and life issues that come up. But it's difficult to find. So in those previous episodes that I referred to, I've spoken about how you find a mashpia. And sometimes it takes time. You may find one for good certain things. You may need another for other matters. So it's fine. But the key is everybody can find somebody. Now you can begin with the referrals. You can either find somebody that um, tests them and see how they respond to certain things. Do not be afraid to change if necessary. You don't want to change just because you don't like what you're hearing. You don't want to jump to mashpia jumping from one mashpia to the next. But if something is really not working, it's important to find another opinion, like finding another doctor. 
So why is it not organized? That's a good question, and it's a good uh, request, and I wish we could get it organized. It's because these are the, one of the things that are not just bureaucratic and technical in nature. It really requires uh, some, some type of sophistication, some type of respect, some type of sensitivity. Unfortunately, we don't always put our heads together to do that act correctly. I'm not here to criticize. It's hard to find an organized, centralized mashpia system. As for example, even, even therapy is not that simple because not everybody's good to find the right referrals. That's why I think it's critical to find people you trust who can lead you to others. And never give up because this is a vital component in every person's life. So, um, yes, we all hope it would work better, but I would suggest do not give up. And you keep testing, you get referrals, as I said, you end up speaking to someone, you may not even think of them as a mashpia, then you realize they give good advice. And there are good people out there. If you contact us and you give us your email address, we can maybe even make some referrals. But we need your email address because, as I said, we can't communicate with you because it's all anonymous. Okay. So, again, this is complemented by the other uh, episodes where I discussed this. The next question. It's a two-fold question, not related to one another, so I'll answer them both, first one at a time. But primarily it's about kosher certifications. Hashgacha. So the person writes, I'll write the whole thing. I'll read first. Um, I wanted to know if Rabbi Jacobson spoke about the Chinuch Chabad, about Chinuch Chabad, meaning Chinuch in a Chabad school, the importance, despite that other schools see more control of the kids. The importance of sending children to a Chabad school, if you're a Chabad chosid, despite that other schools may be more in control of their kids, maybe, maybe even more effective. So yes, I absolutely addressed it, episode 69 and 258. 69 and 258. No need to go over that. But here's the second half of the question. I wanted to add, also I wanted to add another question about kosher certifications. What distinguishes between different kosher certifications? Should I be choosing one over another? What is the difference between all the good ones? Meaning, why can't we just eat any type of meat with ashgocha, even satmer meat? What so many differences that see, why are there so many differences that seem all good? I'm asking because people in the Chabad house ask why I won't eat in a certain restaurant or certain restaurants, even though they are all glad and okay, Heksher. It's just separating Jews in their eyes. And they're wondering why I would do that. Thank you. Please help me on this issue, Rabbi. Thank you again for your support and your weekly classes. They are greatly appreciated. Okay. So this is really a phenomenon of modern times concept of Ashgachis. Once upon a time, people lived in a shtetl, in a town. They were either a sheikh themselves, they would, they, they would slaughter, they would be sheikh to meat. And they over-supervised all the issues of food and kashras. The woman in the house was trusted, as the Rebbe very often repeats, that a woman in a kitchen is becheskes kashras, and you would trust her. You don't need a mashgiach, you don't need to pay someone to check where do you need to pay somebody is when you're dealing with a restaurant, where you're dealing with an institution that's commercial. Since they're making money, so it could be they can cut corners, they have interests that can bias them, even if they have Yerushalayim. So the concept of Hashgachas, of certifications, began approximately, I don't know, I'm not sure where. I mean, I never did the history of it. I'm sure back in Europe, and there may have been also that concept in certain cities as they grew larger. So the concept did have a group of Rabonim and a team who would, either one person or a few who would vouch, who they would be like a shliach, that you would 
trust their opinion. Just like you trust a Rav who would give a hechsher on a certain sheikhet or like a mashgiach. Mashgiach turned into a bigger entity which became mashgoche for different locations or for different ingredients and foods. And hence we have the kosher industry, kosher certification industry. Whether it's OU or it's OK or Chofke or Starke or the different ones in Eretz Yisrael, the Badats, I'm not going to go through every name. And names here, I'm not here to endorse the endorsers. It's not my job. That you should check with Rabonim. But there are reputable ones that are, have a Cheskes Kashas. They have Rabonim that are Yiddish Shemayim. They have a team of people, whether it's in one place or over the world today with the global village we live in. There's also the need. Ingredients come from different parts of the world. So you need Mashgichim to go to see how the ingredients are made that in turn become part of the, the certain particular produced food, the processed food. So you have this business. Some people are a little cynical about it because the question is, do you need Ashgach on everything? Do you need Ashgach on salt? Do you need Ashgach on fruits and vegetables? So of course, there's, in every area, there could be things that can make something not completely kosher or, the, or, chal, or, or, or issues like bugs and lettuce and so on. So hence, you have this industry. I'm not here to be a watchdog of the kosher certification industry. It's not my job. It's not the purpose of chassidus applied. My life chassidus applied. Yet, it's a good question. It's a good question. So here's my response. Number one is the reputable entities. I'm talking about reputable. Someone suddenly comes tomorrow, you hear a new entity that's offering kosher certification. You want to know they're reputable. How do you know? You have to have rabbonim, that either they oversee them, that you can call and talk to, or Rabbonim that are known to be trustworthy. Now you could ask, how do we know that Rabbonim are trustworthy? Okay, that's why each community has their Rav. And you can check. One Rav can check another Rav. There's ways. So if you're a responsible person and you're a Yerush Shemaim, you're going to check. You're not just going to be automatic. So once you establish that a kosher certification entity is kosher, so then when you see on a food that certification, is, it's trustworthy. We even see sometimes they'll give out alerts that this product or this um, item or this ingredient is right now under question. So don't buy that until let's correct it. Same thing with restaurants. You want to check the certification. Is it renewed? Is it fresh? And the rabbis and these certification organizations come and do their random checks and spot checks and then however the standards are. Is there a difference between standards? There are. I've heard from people, for example, that certain standards of certain chashwachas are much higher than others. Does that mean the others are not kosher? No, there's bidiyevet, there's lechat chila. So you have to ask yourself where you stand. Where do you stand? If you're looking to be the top highest level, so talk to your rav, talk to your mashpiyev, and ask what is the highest standard when it comes to certain things. Certain people just want to eat meat from people they know. They don't want to eat meat from another community, even though they may be tzaddikim and yirashamayim. You mentioned a certain type of meat. There was fights with different communities, so some people said, I'm not going to eat meat from someone that insulted my Rebbe. It's a whole other discussion. But this is what each individual has to determine. What's your standards? I don't know your standards for Pesach, for regular kashas. So we know there's certain standards that everybody agrees this is, this is not kosher if you do it below the standard. Then there are things that are more mehudr and more mehudr. You need to determine where you stand. And different ashgachas do have differences. To be very honest, what I hear is many ashgachas have sometimes similar mashgichim, even the same mashgichim. So the standards may be similar. 
And it's fair to call any certification organization and say, what are your standards? And can you compare them to other certification organizations? They'll be transparent in most cases, I believe, or maybe in all cases, and they'll tell you. So then you could say, okay, this is what they accept. Some others will not accept that. Too, too, it's too intricate to go into detail in every particular standard and Bidiyevitz and the Chachilis and Hidurim in this program. But there are differences. How you should choose, you should choose with your Rav. You should choose with your spouse. Everyone has a certain standard. Even if you're not going Ashwach, even in your own kitchen, what standards do you, do, do you follow? Is it black and white? Some things are, and some things are more gray area, and there are different opinions. You want to go to the highest standard? You can then use that. There are people, for example, that will not eat anything from Hashgacha that they themselves did not shech themselves or see the shechita themselves. There is that standard. It's not so common today, not so practical, but there are people on that level. So it all comes down to where you stand. Okay, and like in anything in Judaism, they have different standards in different communities and that does not mean one is good and one is wrong, even though I am sure there's some dubious certification, where that also you can find out by getting a consensus. Remember, since it's commercial, not everybody is always objective, but you can always check with the other. And that way, in a way, you can have a reality check determining what is the best way for you to go. But I think like in anything in life, what you always have is discretion and intelligence. You don't jump, you don't get impulsive, you research, you ask the right questions, you go to a restaurant, you see you see it's expired. Why wasn't it renewed? And maybe until it's renewed, you should not eat there. Not maybe, for sure. Because it could be it's not being renewed. You can't always trust the owner because the owner has, obviously, commercial interest. And we hope that everybody should have the Yiddish Shemayim, but that's why you need to have sometimes independent, and that's not sometimes always independent certification to establish what is going on. Unfortunately, there have been instances where there were people who fooled community in very bad ways. I don't want to go to all the nightmares, but it's important to be careful and especially extra careful what you bring into your home and what you feed yourself and your children. Okay, next question. Completely different angle. Should I accept a once-in-a-lifetime offer to play a role in a TV show? Now, this one I did not get at all. I can't even cross-reference. Responding to a role being considered for TV, how to apply for, I'm elderly, but this would be such a fun opportunity. Okay. Not an easy question to answer, because first of all, you want to make sure, let's deal with halacha first, that what you're doing is not against in any prohibited way. We're talking about regarding tzniyas, modesty, or other things that you may be portraying in a once-in-a-lifetime TV show. That's one. Number two, you have to determine who you are. There's some people, it's not for them, even if they have acting ability. Some people are trained actors, professional actors. This is their parnosa. So I've had people show me scripts. They said, should I be part of it? And I said, look, part of that script, there's certain things I would perhaps suggest a shift for your role. But it's not just you. You're part of a whole team. Maybe the whole story is not appropriate. So it all depends on what, which I don't have the information for. So my answer to you is, you need to talk to a mentor, a mashpia, someone who's knowledgeable in halacha, in chesidus, and the standards of chesidushkeit, that can give you a good opinion whether this is for you. It was Dudu Fisher 
who played for a while, John Valjean, in Lehman's Rab on Broadway. He's a Frumit, he's Shemesh Shabbos. So he was concerned because they have Friday night programs. So interestingly, the director let him off the hook. But then later it was changed, it was uh, without going into details, and he had to leave. But that was an example. This is his panos. He's a singer, he's an actor. Is, is, should we be going to a play? Should we be acting in a play? I do not say it's for most people. This is his panos. He had his rabbonim. They gave him his tatum. He needed to do this. Is the show, is the, pro, is the play completely appropriate? Most likely not. But he went to his mentors and that's what he got his head. But when it came to Shabbos, that was the line. Just giving an example. So I don't think for most of the listeners here this may be relevant, but for those that is relevant, it's very pertinent that you speak, imperative that you speak to someone that you can trust, has both halachic knowledge and also certain broad knowledge because we have to be real, feel, deal with the reality. Now there are people who say going into acting is not something for a teiraid. And there is a good case to be made for that. I'm not going to ignore that. We're talking about someone who's already an actor from before. So there's a famous letter, or at least famous to me, where, where a, group of, um, a group of rock musicians became from, and they asked the Rebbe whether they should now use their knowledge in music to make a Kiddush Hashem for Kedusha purposes. It's a long letter, which is interesting, the Rebbe's answer. Are you sure you're using it the right way? How will it be interpreted by others? But you see, it changes the whole picture when you're a person. The Rebbe, one of the conditions the Rebbe makes there is that you should get panosah from it, not just as a mitzvah. So someone who's a doctor and then becomes a balchuva and then goes to the Yiddishkeit, obviously now the doctor should be done, al Should he have become a doctor in the first place if he was a frum bacher, a woman in the Chabad school and becoming a shliach or shlucha? Not necessarily. So you have to always think in terms before and after. They're always in a way that's al kosher. But you could say, some people, this is their mixeya, this is their living, this is their expertise. But it's not simple. I'm not going to say it's simple that, because the spirit, the climate and environment of the acting community is not exactly uh, consistent with Taylor values. So besides the actual show and program and being part of that, there's also the environment. Is that the right environment? And I don't want to give a blanket answer in a program like this. This needs to be discussed. But you have to take all the angles. You could say, in general, it's not in the spirit. You could say maybe certain, uh, certain roles you could take upon. In, in controlled setting, doesn't mean you don't have to hang around. It's always, it's like there isn't a sign involved, and you want to make sure you're doing the right thing, both halachically and the spirit of the law. Okay, next. So next, viewer discretion advised, dealing with some sensitive matters of intimacy and sexuality. Topics I have spoken about, but... And they start accumulating new questions, some, some a little different, some the same. From time to time, it's important to talk about because Taylor addresses everything. And let's be realistic. One of the issues and challenges of our time, maybe of all times, but also our time, is sexual matters. So we address it from a Taylor point of view, a Chassidus point of view, from the Rebbe, in a modest way, in a discreet way. But still, it's a sensitive matter, so I just wanted to give forewarning for those that are listening to this or uh, watching this. So here's the question. The question is about same-gender attraction. How should I deal with same-gender attraction? And then there's some follow-up questions in that itself. So let me read the question. I will read it somewhat um, 
parsed, meaning somewhat condensed. What should one do who's attracted to a specific person of the same gender and they're already falling in love with an emotional connection with that person? What is there to do? It seems like there's no answer. Either repress yourself or stop being from. No in-between. It's one question. Dear Rabbi Jacobson, I'm a regular from teenage girl. I've recently come across your podcast on Spotify and I found your candid explanations to real-life issues, according to Chassidus, absolutely eye-opening. So thank you so much for doing what you do. As a normal teenager, I obviously have developed an attraction to the opposite gender. However, I have lately noticed that I have also been attracted to the same gender. I have been taught that this is a teyeva, meaning an abomination, and strictly against the teyeva, and therefore these feelings alarm me. Should I ignore these feelings and chalk it up either being a stage, quote-unquote, or coming from desperation due to lack of exposure to males. And even if I'm legitimately attracted to both, do I tell anyone? My parents and others are not bothered because I can still get married and live a normal life as I am still attracted to males. I don't feel any need to go around publicly announcing my orientation, be it straight or not, but I am obligated to inform, but am I obligated to inform my parents? What is the proper Torah view on these matters Thank you so much again. And sorry for the long and controversial question. And finally, one more question in this family. Dear Rabbi Jacobson, my intention is at the end, is at the end of me writing this, I would feel better and be more comfortable with myself and have a boost of self-esteem. I grew up in an FFB home. That's from from birth. I'm past shlichus and smicha. I have not been abused as a child. Smicha and shlichus and smicha is when a student went on shlichus to different places of the world. And smicha is ordination, rabbinic ordination. Not a day goes by without me thinking about how attractive my own gender is to me. My friends would make a random comment here or there about an attractive opposite gender. I see the beauty of a woman, though I feel much more attracted to a male. I've dated a couple of girls already. Never had a real connection till the last girl I dated. Though I felt a huge block in our dating, even though we psychologically vibed because of my feelings towards men. We went very deep in dating. She ended it because she didn't feel enough. The whole time I had doubts because of my overall feelings towards the opposite, to not her gender. I want to raise a family and go in the correct way, though for me it's proving difficult. I have another date potentially set up, but I wanted to write to you, this to you before I decide on it. What would Chassidah say about someone with mixed feelings and making a family at the same time? Thank you. Okay. And there are many more. Some that are too explicit to read. Some that are included in what we discussed here. But this covers really quite a few questions that have come in, have come in over the years. But let me address it. So first let me refer you to top two episodes where I discussed this in more detail. And this is complementing what was said there. I'm not going to repeat that all. Episodes 79, 80, 235, and 239. Okay, so let me say this. Let's begin from the, the, the top of it all. God created the world. He created the human being. He created the sexuality of each human being, the gender and the sexuality. And he created natural inclinations and attractions that we have. As he says, a man and woman were created in the divine image. Zachar nekeva bara 
And then God split them into two, and that's why they look for each other to reunite with the divine image in which they both were one. This does not mean that there cannot be an attraction to the same gender, because there is, number one, we all have feminine and masculine elements. The question is what's dominant, and there could be. But the teda, which is the blueprint for life that God gave us, is by the creator who created us. Who knows better about gender and sexuality and attraction than the one who created us? It's the operator, the engineer, the cosmic engineer of all of existence. So when the Teda tells us how to marry and how to whom to be attracted, it's giving us the best way possible. This doesn't mean we won't have challenges. A person can be heterosexual, have attraction to opposite gender, and say, I can't be monogamous because I am too attracted to everybody or to too many people. The Teda says, no. We're not asking you to be celibate. We're not asking you not to have any relations, but do it in the sacred way, the way God intends it, with, 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 uh, with one person, and commit to that person their entire life, and you can have a beautiful, beautiful life. Don't just focus on the sexuality of it. The relationship is far more than that. As I discussed at length in those episodes, I discussed at length in the chapter on intimacy and toward a meaningful life. And God tells us, that doesn't mean there aren't challenges. Some people are very hot-blooded. As I said, it's not even a same-gender thing. So then what do you do when there is an attraction? There could be for different reasons. I'm not going to get now into nature, nurture, even if it's nature. The Rebbe writes, even if it's wired, this doesn't mean you have to give in. It's a predisposition, an inclination. I know this is not politically correct. People say, this is how I'm wired. A leopard cannot change its, uh, its spots. A tiger cannot change its stripes. Well, this is a longer discussion. I talked about that. I would recommend the book by Jeffrey Satin over the politics of homosexuality. And it's more complicated than the, polit- the, the politics of it suggest. But regardless, this doesn't mean people don't have challenges. So if we're going with the premise, the axiom, the tater, God, tells us what is healthy sexuality, so same, same gender is not what the tater expects. We'll talk in a minute about the difference between male and female regarding this. It's not relevant to this discussion. Is it a challenge? It may be a challenge. So I appreciate your writing. And my answer to all the questions is, you know what? Ignore it. Move on. Date the opposite gender. Get married. In a beautiful way. If you need help, talk to someone. Talk to a professional. But since you're asking me the question, what's the Chassidish Tater approach? Do it the way the Tater said to be done. I have the attraction. Since when everything that we're attracted to we have to act on? I'm not taking away from the attraction. I'm not taking away even from the beauty of it. But that's not something you have to act on. That's something you have to pursue. So we have to remember that we have a higher authority to answer to, a higher calling. And not, we're not talking about suffering. We're not talking about misery. Now you're right. You already feel feelings. You know what? This is the time to nip it in the bud and direct those feelings to, this, to an opposite gender. I know this is not simple. Some say, I can't. If you can't, that's not what anyone wrote here. You can't. You just asked what to do with it. If you can't, it's another discussion, which I have talked about in those episodes as well, but you need to talk to someone not on a program online, to an individual and talk about it and figure it out. But no such thing is impossible. I have heard stories of people who completely felt they could not, not buy, where they're attracted to both genders. But someone attracted only to the same gender and today I'm happily married doesn't mean they don't have challenges. It could be a lifetime challenge. We all have challenges. But you can harness, you can direct, 
and you could live a very happy life. But you need to work on it, and you need to talk to people. So that's my answer to all the questions. I'm just seeing if I... Well, to tell your parents, not necessarily. I don't think you have to make announcements. Parents can sometimes just complicate matters. You should talk to somebody that is not in your family unit, perhaps. Someone you can trust that won't get hysterical and also will not become part of the problem with you. Because if you have parents who start pressuring you or start criticizing you or start whatever, it just becomes more pressure than necessary. But you have to really have people who you can trust emotionally, that identify with you, that empathize, that are not judgmental. That I totally agree. It's not about judgment. This is not about condescension. It's not about, oh, you're, something's the matter with you. Find people you can talk to and really sincerely get good advice. <clears throat> okay, I think I've said enough on this topic, especially considering that I've already discussed it more at length than the episodes I mentioned at the outset. In this vein, the next question is female sexuality. Can you address female homosexuality? There's no direct prohibition, prohibition in the Torah forbidding it, so it is seen as is it seen as less of an aveda, a sin, than acting on male homosexuality. Number two, is there any difference in how the Torah views male versus female sexuality? It is not explicitly mentioned that Torah isn't female homosexuality, quote unquote, better. And finally, a person writes it this way: Is same gender relationship prohibited by females as it is for males? So yes, when you look in the Teda in, uh, in, in Vayikra, where the Parsha Nachre, where it talks about, Pafetus talks about male homosexuality, the prohibition, it does not mention female. And you don't find it written in the written Teda. But that's the letter of the law. Then there's the spirit of the law. Spirit of the law, if you look in the beginning of Chumash, as I mentioned, male and female created them, come together to give, to, to, to unite, come one, and then marry in a sacred, to, to marry in a sacred way and become one, and give birth to children, and bring up children in a home with a father and a mother. So even if you don't find, for whatever reason, there are explanations given that the act is different, there's different elements of the prohibition, but the spirit, and that's what we have to look up to, the spirit, to live up to the highest standard. So in a so-called applied, my life so this applied, I'm not looking to give loopholes and to discuss and cutting corners. We're talking about what is expected to be the best you can be. As I said, I'm not talking about the attraction. I'm acting on it. So there's the spirit of the law. Now, frankly, I'm not comfortable really talking about it, but because this program is listened to by so many and we're dealing with real issues in life, we have to look from a Tadakh to this perspective. So I'm addressing it for that reason and that reason alone. But in truth, this issue should be talked about woman to woman. Anyone dealing with this should talk to a woman, not necessarily to a man, not necessarily with me. So I'm just giving the general guideline that it's not in the spirit. And more details, you should talk to someone and figure out how to sublimate, how to harness, how to redirect, how to channel your feelings in this regard. But we live in a society where this has become very perm a permissive society. Society that is legitimizing, not just accepting, it's legitimizing, initially. That's why it's important to talk about. And don't, don't buy into the media and to the public consensus. Because there are people with agendas who are living a life based on what they want. Not necessarily what God wants. Not necessarily even what's best for them. We have a blueprint. It's called Teda and Chassidus. 
In the previous episodes that I referred to, there's also letters that the Rebbe has written about it, and um, I will uh, I refer you to those episodes for more information. Okay. Next question. The next question is on social anxiety and everyday life. What to do about social anxiety in my everyday life? Dear Rabbi Jacobson, this topic I'm about to express is something very real. When people hear the term social anxiety, I don't think they can grasp the effects it actually has on a person and often dismiss it to mean that a person is just not that social. For someone who never experienced this, it is hard to understand the extent of it, but it is so real and makes every simple day tasks debilitating. There are various extremes of social anxiety, but I am referring to the type when any encounter with another person that's not close family involves the entire body system going into the flight, fright, freeze response. How am I supposed to go about my day and life when this response is almost always activated around people? When people are a vital role in life, it makes holding down a job so difficult because the constant worry on how you're going to come across the sweaty palms, your entire body can't just relax and be present. It's a need to present yourself in a perfect manner and it then leads to to repressed anger and frustrated feelings after keeping this up for so long. How would you suggest going about this to get to the point where dating, hanging out with friends, and sometimes even family members will feel more natural. I know CBT and facing your fears is often the solution to such problems. CBT is cognitive behavioral therapy. Is often the solution to such a problem, but I've tried, but that doesn't change the fact that my entire system goes into panic around people. On the outside, I come across fine, but inside I feel like a conscious wreck. Is the eye contact, the blushing, the uncomfortable feeling in the body, the changing yourself depending on who you are with, makes life very hard with this issue. This issue may seem like one to be dismissed, but it's not real. But it's so real, I'm sorry, in the fact that the most mundane things that people don't think twice about, like receiving a text or being asked about your day activity, your day activates this full-flown panic response. Is the constant worry and anticipation, the typical change your thoughts attitude doesn't seem to do the job on this one? How would you go about, how would one go about this issue? I also do not want to take medication would mean a lot to me for you to answer this. A second person writes, similar question, for my entire life I've struggled with feelings of low self-esteem and social anxiety. Since I've begun my career, it has also become more pronounced and has been the source of even greater frustration. My current job regularly requires that I be in contact with clients, the fear of which sometimes results in poor job performance. Furthermore, my dream job, the reason for which I entered this profession in the first place would require an even greater comfort level dealing with other people. This is something I don't believe I will ever be able to achieve. The result is more feelings of failure, despair, and sadness. I then give up on other things like pursuing shiduchim or continuing my professional education. It's not like I have not done anything about it. I've been going to therapists for a number of years, but I've not seen the results I'm looking for, that I'm looking for. At work, I have done the hard things even though it wasn't comfortable, I wasn't comfortable doing it. But each time a new situation presents itself, I feel like I am in an even worse situation. I feel like I have tried everything. What do I do? Okay. It's always sad to read these letters. 
put yourself in the shoes of such people going through such ongoing agony. So I have addressed this topic in episodes 4, 93, 182, and 197. As a matter of fact, I think I addressed actually almost similar questions. So I'm going to be very brief because I refer you to those. I'm reading the questions because they came in recently. And as I said, I always address everything, but there's nothing wrong with referring to a previous program where the topic is discussed more thoroughly. Briefly, the key thing to remember, and I'm talking about beyond regular therapy and uh, the conventional methods, is we have Teda and we have Chassidus. What was the famous line said to the Baal Shem Tov by his father on his deathbed that gave the Baal Shem Tov so much strength? Have not, we not fear anything except God. Well, we have an additional asset, as explained at length in Shara Betochen from Cheves Halavovis, the gate of trust, is that we have a God that gave us life, a God that gave us our souls, that gives us life anew every morning, that's with us. So a key element that adds to everything else, I'm not taking away from other m- interventions and methods, is to remember the deep petochen, that you, God is with you. So even when Moshe Rabbeinu was afraid to go to Pare, says, Boy al Pare, come with me, I'm going with you. To recognize, Vihini Hashem Nitzavalov, God stands above you, and Boichen Kleis Velev, and looks into your heart and soul. So there we're talking about having Yiddish Hashem, but it's also about empowerment. So the common theme you see in so many answers from the Rebbe to people with social anxiety questions or other similar questions is the trust in God. Not just a thought process, doing things that activate and nurture that trust. Whether it's Moida'ani in the morning and meditating on that, God giving you your soul. Whether it's throughout the day recognizing the blessings you have. Whether it's prayer, other ways that you hold on. Sugebun Eben, you've bound above you don't fall below. Is it an automatic magic pill? No, but the more you build, that's an additional resource that gives a person a broader arsenal to deal with challenges, including fears. So once you're able to integrate that into your life, you'll have more repertoire, a wider and larger repertoire to address when a person has social anxiety. That still doesn't mean you shouldn't monitor it. You should have a friend or a mentor, mashpia, who you can talk to. Sometimes if you have to go to an event or have to meet some people, you should talk to someone. They maybe can consult, can comfort you, can calm you. And having that type of support, because the last thing you want is people who are critical of you and continue to feed your negative self-image. Is this all magic? No. I don't have a quick solution. But this is what Tehidah adds to the picture. Having that element. Yidag Adam somebody who concerned has anxiety in their heart, which means to speak about it, and also to distract yourself as the Rebbe reconciles the two. By speaking about it, you release it, and it becomes less consuming. I find in dealing with this, very often it's not the anxiety, it's your own fear of the anxiety. It so consumes you that that becomes even bigger than the anxiety itself. So the anxiety over the anxiety. That's why it's important to comment as much as possible and recognize, you know what, I can do it. I go with another party, I go with another person. There are many things that we can do that can help us really in this regard. So, so this is the, essentially the point I'm making here is the ability to um, recognize that when you have that, you should be able to turn to someone that helps you build that betochen and of course methods that you yourself build that betochen with. Okay. So, 
in addition to what I said in the, previous, in the other programs, that's what I say right here. And now let's go to the next question. What is the next question? Is This is Mamish, a question that was asked already, literally a question, so I'll read it, and then I'll refer you to the episodes as well. The sin of the Nazar versus the sin of partaking. How to reconcile the seemingly conflicting statements about enjoying life's pleasures. Supreme Ashpiyak... <laughs> We have this person writing to me. Supreme Ashpia, King and Virtual Fabrenger Extraordinaire, Rabbi Jacobson. Thank you so much for your ongoing weekly Chassidus Applied videocasts. The applied lessons you teach are very needed, and you do a great service to all those who watch and listen. May Hashem bless you and your family with His manifold blessings. My question today revolves around the balance of how we interact with Hashem's world. On the one hand, we're taught that that which is not allowed, you're not allowed. And even that which is allowed, you don't also don't have to do it. Meaning that one should not partake in the material world more than absolutely necessary. In other words, the ideal life of a Jew chassid is to interact with the material of the world at a bare minimum, the bare necessities. On the other hand, we're taught that the Nazir has to bring a sin offering, vowing not to drink wine. He, she, sinned by not indulging in the blessing of partaking in the delight of drinking wine. Drinking wine is certainly an extravagance and not a bare necessity. The Nazar is considered to have sinned by abstaining from the otherwise permissible wine. He, she, should be partaking in the blessings of bounty of the wonderful world Hashem created. So too in Hasidic teachings we are taught that the ultimate is to utilize Hashem's world for godliness. So the more we use the bounty of Hashem's world in our lives, as we dedicate our lives to living a firm life serving God, the more we elevate the world around us. As an example, if I eat a beautiful piece of steak, drink the best wines, wear the nicest clothes, drive the nicest car, have the most luxurious vacations, etc., and my life is on the whole dedicated to Hashem, then all these things are elevated to Hashem and Godliness. The question is how all these teachings drive together and how do you balance it? This question is exactly asked to me in, and addressed it in episodes 123, 159, 161, 165, and 167. So please don't hesitate. Just go to those episodes. It's all time-stamped in the YouTube version online in the desktop or laptop, so you can find exactly what you're looking for with one click. Okay. Well, briefly, obviously, there's a balance. One, one extreme or the other. Hashem wants us to partake, but not indulge. If once you've indulged, there's ways to transform. So we're not talking about abstinence. We're not talking about asceticism, but also not overindulgence. That's the key. And not abstaining more than necessary. We don't believe in that. But the details, I rely that you look in those and listen to those episodes. There's follow-up. We'll do two follow-ups, and then the chassidus question, and then the essays. One was dating a mishachist. Hello, Rabbi. Thank you for teaching and caring. The dating a mishachist headline caught my eye. That was last week's episode because my wife and I had an experience concerning this matter. We were dating on Skype, which itself could have been the issue, and it was going well. I was ready to fly to date her in person. I asked her if she'd be okay with me flying in to meet her, and we ended up having a conversation about Yechi. I grew up in a Hasidic house where Yechi was never said. In fact, as kids, we got our energy from being the antis. Quote unquote. The girl I was dating, however, now my wife grew up saying Yechi regularly. This came up in our conversations and we understood the difference as something more than just a custom. 
We understood it as representing an attitude toward Yiddishkeit and towards the Rebbe. So we decided to stop dating because of our difference in this matter. Months later, we, months later, we decided to date in person. Yechid didn't come up in conversation until it was pretty obvious we were getting engaged. We are Baruch Hashem happily married and my wife only says Yechid occasionally to tease me. And I can live with that. I think what we learned from all this is that although questions like this can show on values that people have towards Yiddishkeit, being able to work through and overcome these differences can be an even greater value when it comes to marriage. Thank you so much for writing that. Very consistent to what I said and I appreciate real life experience so it's not just a theory. Thank you. Number two, a very different type of response. I had a few of these. The truth is more were positive, but here's the critique. I just chanced on an episode where Rabbi Jacobson discusses two questions amongst others. The first is in regards to Shaduchim and Mishachistim. In a performance of diplomacy more suited to the UN, Rabbi Jacobson explicitly chooses to take no side. He validates each opinion, choosing not to dissect whether the opinions on either fringe are all valid based on prime or latter sources. Instead, with a wave of the proverbial hand, he buries the issue and deflects to more fundamental and obvious attributes, none of which are new to anyone. This is classical avoidance masquerading by the poorly termed political issues aside, quote-unquote. This is not politics. It goes to the heart of Chabad beliefs and is most definitely a fundamental point of disagreement amongst Chassidim, which has seen changes of attitude from no less than great mashpim, strident views of great rabbonim, on one side, and another of on the other side. Yet in the very next question, when discussing the amount of contact between an engaged couple, Rabbi Jacobson suddenly abandons Diplo speak and exclaims that one needs to examine what the Rebbe said about the issue. Was there nothing the Rebbe said about the Mishachist issue? Was there no Fabrengo where he didn't address himself directly to the question of the identity of Mashiach? Of course there was. I understand that Rabbi Jacobson aims to heal and or soften the undercurrent of Machlekes in Chabad, but burying oneself in diplomatic sand is simply a cop-out. For someone like me, educated by Chabad, but not a Chabad chassid, it is intellectually vacant and does nothing to engender any confidence that very real issues are dealt with in a brave as opposed to perfunctory manner. Let me crystallize the issue. I am thoroughly turned off by chanting, especially in shul, and especially at some point in davening. I find that a real turnoff, though I consider myself no less yearning to Geula. Frankly, I don't care who Mashiach ben David or Yosef is. I don't dwell on the who and find the crazies who stand on street corners daily chanting and jumping and swinging their big yellow flags at time waste, as time wasters and psychologically challenged. You may well disagree. I don't think you should bury the strong anti-Mashiach's views under a transparent diplomatic blanket. I read this uncensored. Uh, those of you who understand probably understand my position on the matter. I'm fine with you writing all of this. Obviously, I don't agree with everything. I stand by my position. I don't feel diplomatically correct. It's interesting how in the beginning you say, quote the Rebbe, and then you go on saying how you can't stand it. I never heard words like that in the Rebbe's sikhis. So I would say that I stand by what I said, and uh, by all means, I don't have to um, suppress your words because I stand by what I said. So I read it. That everybody take it as they see fit. Comes to Shaduchim, I, I, I focus again, like the first writer wrote, focus on the Iker, the primary things that really make a marriage work, and everything else will follow. And yes, follow the Rebbe Sichas, and you'll see in the Sichas of the Rebbe different ways you can interpret. Popular interpreter one way, another way. The main thing is to always be true 
to the integrity of what is being said. Okay, now there was anti-Semitism. Because I pushed it off, I'll just address that briefly. This was a long letter, which I'll be reading piecemeal because there's interesting points about how I'll address it. So this is following up what I spoke about in episode 263, two episodes back. So the person continues to write, there are additional issues which, based on discussion, pertain more to white Gentiles outside New York City, meaning white Gentiles who show anti-Semitism. The first and strongest issue is communism. White Gentiles hate communism with the same passion that we hate Nazism, Yemach Since Karl Marx, founder of communism, was born to a rabbinic family, and since Reform Rabbi Stephen Weiss reportedly equated communism with Lahavdal Judaism, white Gentiles believe that communism is Jewish, God forbid, and accepted by all Jews. My response to this is that communism was invented by heretics, and Reform Judaism is a recent man-made invention unlike traditional Judaism, which comes from God. Traditional Jews are opposed to communism, if you white Gentiles want to say that Reform Judaism is communism, that's your thing. It's extremely important that we, as a community, publicly disavow communism. Okay. There's more. And my comment on that is, as I said, I don't believe in Parkinzich in going into this immersion in debates, but it may be helpful. That's why I feel reading some of these responses may be helpful for some who have to deal with this issue. So we'll continue more of this. So this is the anti-Semitism track that we went in episode 263, now 265. Now let's deal with the Chassidus question. Far more up my alley, so to speak. Contemplating Mitzrayim and our love for Hashem. Rabbi Jacobson, this is a Chassidus question in Tanya. Chassidus question, I'm sorry. In Tanya's section, Chinuch Kotten, Chinuch Kotten is that small section after the first part of Tanya, Lekut Amorim, and before Shari Yechid Vamuna, it's somewhat of an introduction to Shari Yechid Vamuna, and we learn it in Chitas, right before Shavuos. So he says in Tanya's section, Chinuch Kotten, and there's discussion why it's called Chinuch Kotten, not here's the place to go into it. It says that a way that any Jew can come to love Hashem is to contemplate how Hashem went down to Mitzrayim, such a lowly place, and brought us out of there, and brought us very close to Him, when we contemplate Hashem's great kindness to us, we feel love to Him. When I tried doing that, I right away started thinking, Hashem is the one who put us into Mitzrayim in the first place, to begin with. So how can I feel that loving feeling in view of this fact? Please help. I really want to love Hashem. Thanks. So that's exactly what it does say there. As he says, when your person wants to about two different types of love, one is a natural love that we have hidden within the soul, but there's a law that you can command which is elicit by contemplating. Contemplating how God, give, how God gives you life and sustenance. Contemplating God's kindness. And one of the things he's doing, contemplating how God himself went into Mitzrayim to take us out. So the question is, he put us there. So how could it elicit love? How do we know he put us there? The potatoes says that Hashem in Briz Ben Absarim spoke to Avram and said that the Jews will be in Eretz Leilehem, they'll be in a land that's not theirs. And then afterwards, I'll take them out from there, but a chush with great treasures. So that's what he's asking. So first, I spoke about similar ideas in episodes 178, 203 through 205, 222, and 259. Briefly, briefly, besides going and looking there, this is like asking a question, why would I thank God for giving me life this morning, Moida'ani, and all the other borchas ashachar, when life also has tzoros? He put us in a situation why should I make a birchas hanissim 
Anes, when God caused the situation to be a problem in the first place. Life is troublesome. Life is difficult. More pleasant for a person not to be born. Why would I thank God for life? The answer is, my friends, that we don't know the mysteries of life. We do know, however, that life is a gift. Yes, life has suffering in it. But if you look at the overall picture, God could have not given us anything. We wouldn't be here to complain about it. We wouldn't be here to praise about it. God chose God, the Almighty God, to give you birth to you, to give you life, to give you challenges, and give you the strength to get out of those challenges. So the most basic thing to do is show gratitude and thanks. To say, because you've also given me tzadahs, I won't say thank you. Remember, first of all, that God, still the blessings that he's given you are still blessings. Number two, maybe they're not tzadahs as you think they are. Maybe right now they're a, a temporary discomfort. We know everything God does is for the good. Maybe that also will lead to the good. Not maybe, for sure. If you really think God is not your equal, he's not the guy that just hired you. He created all of existence. And there was a reason he sent us to Mitzrayim. We become a great nation. Without Mitzrayim, we wouldn't have Matan Teda. We wouldn't have everything that came of it. So at the time, for the 400 years, the 210 years, it was painful. So even the going into Mitzrayim led to greatness. So yes, the immediate pain is something, yes, painful. We're not taking away from that. But look at the story. Now thinking back 3,000 years later, 3,300 years, 3,331 years later, what do we have? The pain of Mitzrayim we don't even remember. We commemorate it. We have the great nation of the Jewish people with a land of Eretz Yisrael, the Teireh, all the things that Jews have, the blessings. So to contemplate on Mitzrayim is a great opportunity. I, Hashem, put us... So first of all, as I said, we're not suffering. What do we... If anything, the Avesenu or Mitzrayim can say that. But they didn't say it either because they saw the miracle. They may not have understood immediately that Mitzrayim will ultimately lead them to greatness. Maybe they did. So they thanked for that too. That's why we say... Just like you bless, you thank God on a blessing, you also thank Him for the negative. Because it leads. So that's a general answer. We look at the big picture and that God is good, and the good sometimes is obvious, and sometimes it's not so obvious, but it leads to a greater good. Okay, now the essays. So we have three essays, which is of the New Contest 2019. All these essays are posted as we speak at chassidahsupply.com our new website for everything Chassidah supplied. Many, many resources, classes, Samarvov and Ayim Beis, and ongoing, growing resources. So we also have the essays of this year's contest, and we're going down in order of the marks. These are still top, top essays. So three essays. The first one is Apathy, Who Cares? By Shana Slavin, age 19, Sydney, Australia, a student in Beis Khan at Tzvas Seminary. Great essay. I must say, I thoroughly enjoyed it. The feeling of love cannot be explained, it must be experienced. The same is true about the feeling of emptiness. This essay will first explore the metaphysics of Chassidus as explained in Chassidim Ba'anshe Maisa Eter, a mimer from Tafri Shayim from the Rebbe Rashab. We will then explore ideas drawn from select Chassidus discourses, including Lubavitch Rebbe's discourse, Veloi Yikonif Eid Merecha, Tafshin Chafalov which delves into the function of a physical mitzvah, namely the intrinsic unity which it reveals. We will be guided toward a practical and lasting method to fill the void in our lives. Goes on to talk about the void. 
different approaches in therapy, secular approaches, and then the Hasidic metaphysics. And also it's parallels with, with CBT and modern psychology. And the ultimate cure to apathy is the fact that we have the free will to do something about it. The Rebbe's call to action, well annotated, an excellent essay to read. It will get you definitely out of an apathetic mode, but it will give you a new take on the whole idea of apathy. Essay number two is Hakoyach Lesloyach in Hebrew, The Power to Forgive. Chava Gelman, age 19, Rishon Letzian in Israel, a student in the seminar Beis Chanetzvas. Okay, also Beis Chanetzvas, which by the way, actually published a book of all the essays of their students, both in Hebrew and English, which is great, great. So the Koyach Lesloyach talks exactly about that, that to forgive is not easy, she writes. That to take someone who's humiliated you and in some way hurt you and forgive them is not easy. But yet, nevertheless, it brings tremendous growth and healing. And this essay talks about why is it worth it, forgiving, and how you achieve that according to Chassidus. How you rise to the occasion and how it can, teach, and how it can make you a person that's a completely new type of person based on the Tanya chap- end of chapter 12 with the story of Yosef and actual practical guidelines to forgive even when you can't forget. And finally, essay number three, Reshaping Your Beliefs, Avram Friedberg, Friedberg, age 51, Toronto, Canada. Does, his job is sales coordinator at AF Enterprises. We all want to improve or change something in our lives. We want to be better spouses, parents, friends, and above all, better Jews. We all know, however, that changing behavior is a challenge with few equals. Can we change? Is long-term sustained change a reality? In the following essay, we will try to demonstrate how it is possible to harness power from strong positive beliefs to make the change, that change happen. As we shall demonstrate Hasidus anticipated these questions whilst offering pragmatic solutions with his distinctive wisdom, profundity, and flavor. He goes on to speak about our beliefs, the experts weigh in, neuroplasticity, very interesting topic about how the mind gets shaped and reshaped, affirmations and mantras, the power of speech, Hasidus applied meditation integration, and the conclusion again with action, practical steps, another excellent essay, I commend you for that. With that, we conclude episode 265 of this of Mike's Life Chassidus Applied, this week's episode. And again, this class was dedicated in loving memory of Ben Sian, Ben Moshe Feivel, and Rachel Cyril Keller, a true chassid of the Rebbe, in honor of his 13th Yatsai and Achof Alef Sivan, may his neshama have an aliyah. Everyone be blessed. A week of shlach, of sending, mes- sending messengers out there to scout out and to conquer the material world and turn it into a spiritual environment. We're here every Sunday, my life, Chassidus Applied, 8 to 9 p.m. All the programs are, are archived. You can download them in iTunes and other podcast platforms, MP3, in any fashion and form. Everyone be blessed and be well.